New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Today we're going to look at some of the assumptions and beliefs that most of us never pause to question, such as the universe exploded from nothing in the Big Bang, or we create our own reality, or humans are the most special of all the species on the planet. Today we'll be exploring these and many other assumptions and beliefs that are pervasive in our culture with our guest, Christian De Quincey. Dr. Christian De Quincey is Professor of Philosophy and Consciousness Studies at John F. Kennedy University and Dean of Consciousness Studies at the University of Philosophical Research. He is the founder of the Wisdom Academy. His books include Radical Nature, The Soul of Matter, Radical Knowing, Understanding Consciousness Through Relationship, Consciousness from Zombies to Angels, Deep Spirit, Cracking the Noetic Code, and Blind Spots, 21 Good Reasons to Think Before You Talk. Join us for the next hour as we challenge convenient assumptions and unquestioned conclusions that make up our daily world with our guest, Dr. Christian DeQuincy. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Christian, welcome. Thank you, Justine. It's good to see you again. It's good to see you again, too. Well, let's just dive right in. Let's start with the beginning, <laughs> the Big Bang. Okay, uh, so I, you know, I've often thought, well, what happened before the Big Bang? So tell me, uh, what are your comments about the Big Bang and, and the blind spot we may have about it? Yes, well, well, many people question um, whether the Big Bang actually ever happened. I'm not questioning that. I think there's plenty of evidence that supports the idea that there was a Big Bang about 13.7, 14 billion years ago. Um, but what I do challenge is the idea that the Big Bang was an explosion that brought everything into being from absolute nothingness. That's the, that's the part that makes no sense. And the blind spot is to think that you can get something from nothing. Um, as I argue in the book or explain in the book that if you start out with nothing, that's all that ever exists. You cannot get something from nothing. I sometimes use the illustration of handing somebody an empty cup and say, I want you to put your hand in there and pick something out. And of course, they look at me as if I'm crazy. and say, I can't do that because there's nothing in there. And I say, yes, you cannot get something from nothing. So therefore, if there was a Big Bang, 
13.7.8 million years ago. There must have been something before that. It could not have come from nothing. So here's what I think is the case, is that yes, our universe probably began about 14 billion years ago, but that was not the start of the beginning of everything. That before that, there was another universe, and before that, another universe. And in fact, we live in an eternal and infinite cosmos, and that universes come and go, but the cosmos is, if you like, the mother of all universes. It gives birth to universes and then embraces them back into itself as they come to the end of their existence. So the main blind spot there is the notion that we can get something from nothing, at least in the cosmology that we're using now or the, the that it made me think well wait a minute that's true in this universe but maybe that's not true in another universe do you know what i'm saying well well that could be the case except we don't know of any other universes um, so we have to work with what we've got we here. We've got to work with what we got. And there are, there are lots of theories out there about multiple worlds and multiple universes. And parallel and universes. Parallel right. universes. Theoretically, that's possible. But empirically, we don't have any any evidence. And in fact, there are plenty of people who would think that by definition, there is no way to access another universe. If we do, then it becomes part of this universe. So communication between parallel universes seems deeply problematic, to, to say the least. So yet there may well be other universes with who knows what kinds of laws might exist there. Um, but the only one we actually know is this one, and so we have to deal with this. So we're working with what we've got here. And one of the ideas that you use in and point out in your work is that consciousness exists and even maybe existed before the Big Bang. Well, you say, oh, all right, what are we talking about? What is consciousness? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we can come back to the question of what is consciousness in a moment, but you, you did bring up another interesting point. Um, Yes, I say that consciousness existed before the Big Bang, but so did energy, so did matter, if you like. That something subjective, consciousness existed, but also something objective, energy existed. So what I say is that um, since you cannot get energy from consciousness and you cannot get consciousness from energy or from matter, therefore consciousness and energy always existed and so they existed before the beginning of this universe, and they will continue to exist when this universe completes itself and returns back into the womb of the cosmos. Consciousness and energy exist as the fundamental nature of the, the, the grand cosmos. Often one of our blind spots, as you might say, is mm -hmm. that we think of consciousness and energy as the same thing. Mm -hmm. And this is where we might get into trouble. And what you point out in your book that I never really got before, I really didn't understand, mm -hmm. you talk about uh, energy as as some sort of material, or in other words, it can it holds volume, it 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 can be measured mm -hmm. so that it is it is Correlated with matter, energy and matter are, are what science, what our present science talk about. Consciousness is a different thing. 
So please elaborate on that because I really didn't have an understanding of that until I read your book. Uh -huh. Okay, very good. Yes, energy, um, we, we can go with Descartes' definitions. Uh, he had some problems in other parts of his philosophy, but he defined matter or energy um, as whatever has extension in space. So energy flows through space, and anything that flows through space is technically objective and, and in principle detectable and measurable. But consciousness doesn't have that kind of existence. Consciousness doesn't flow through space. No matter how sensitive our instrumentation might be, we would never detect a feeling or a thought flowing through space. We can detect energy flowing through space. So back to the question you asked a moment ago, you know, what is consciousness? I have a bumper sticker that sums up the relationship between consciousness and energy, and it is simply this, consciousness knows energy flows. So consciousness is what knows that energy is flowing, but it is not itself a form of flowing energy. It is what knows or experiences or is aware that energy is moving through space. And of course, energy can take the form of matter, as we know from Einstein's E equals mc squared equation, that matter or mass and energy are intimately related. But consciousness is not found in that equation. Those are physical equations. So everything that exists in space is by definition physical. Consciousness is non-physical. It doesn't exist in space. It does exist in time, but not in space. And so to um, be able to be even aware of any form of energy, consciousness needs to be present. But it is not itself one of the objects that it knows. Consciousness knows the objects, but it is not itself an object it is the subject that knows the objects. I think one of the confusions we have is that m many of us uh, know about the when when quantum physics is talking about subatomic particles, and they talk about the observer observing it. It changes things from a wave, which I think of as energy. I, I'm not sure if that's correct, but a wave is energy mm -hmm. into a particle, mm -hmm. thus it becomes matter. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if all that's correct, but mm -hmm. it's the way I kind of hold it. Mm -hmm. And you're shaking your head that this is correct, and that makes me feel good. So that that's why we would say our consciousness creates matter. Mm -hmm. So, But you say that this is a blind spot. Yes, energy exists in waves, and those waves can be collapsed into, into a particle. Um, but the particles are as much energy as the waves are. Um, it's just condensed and focused energy. And then matter is those particles that are accumulated into atoms, and then atoms form molecules, and then the molecules form the stuff that we can touch and see and so on. But it's all energy in, in, in the end. All matter is a form of energy. But... That doesn't account for consciousness. Energy, as I said, is objective. It flows through space. We need something else to understand what's going on, and that would be consciousness is what knows the flowing of energy through space. So what happens, what we know from quantum physics is that in, a quantum, in the quantum domain, a quantum event exists in potential as, as a set of possibilities. They're usually... Um, described as Schrodinger quantum waves. And they're not waves as we understand waves on the ocean or even air waves. They're really mathematical waves. 
mathematically they take the form of waves. And that's what, what they remain until, and here's the big mystery in quantum physics, until some observer observes those quantum probabilities at the moment of observation, quantum physics tells us that those multiple possibilities collapse into one actuality. So what's happening is in the presence of consciousness of an observer, that the probabilities, multiple probabilities, it's like consciousness is reaching into the quantum domain and plucking out from among the spectrum of possibilities one of those possibilities and brings it into the domain of actuality, into manifestation. So what we can say is not that consciousness creates reality, but consciousness participates with potentiality and energy to shape the physical universe. So in that sense, consciousness plays a part in the manifestation, but consciousness alone can only do that if energy already it's exists. Yeah. So I, yeah. I know that you say in your book, the physical world would remain suspended in a tangled mesh of quantum possibilities without consciousness. Exactly. I mean, yeah. that's like, that's such an elegant statement. Thank Wait you. a minute. Okay. Without consciousness, it's just a tangle of possibilities, and that's what you were alluding to just then. Yeah, exactly. That that for a universe like the one we live in, and as we've been saying earlier, this is the only one we know, uh, we need a cosmology that accounts for the presence both of energy and consciousness, and then explains how they relate to each other. So... Um, for the the universe to exist, we need energy and we need consciousness. I'm here with Dr. Christian De Quincey, and he's the author of Blind Spots: Twenty One Good Reasons to Think Before You Talk. I'm Justine Willis Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Dr. Christian De Quincey, and he's the author of Blind Spots, 21 Good Reasons to Think Before You Talk. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, christiandequincy.com, and he spells his last name D-E-Q-U-I-N-C-E-Y.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Christian, we're talking about consciousness and energy, and you said at the very top of the program that most likely consciousness and energy both existed before the Big Bang. So tell us about how they're they're related. Mm, okay. Um, 
Well, there are four major worldviews that attempt to account for that relationship. It's often called the relationship between mind and body or mind and matter or consciousness and energy. Um, basically, it's the relationship between the non-physical and the physical. And the four worldviews are dualism that we get from Descartes, which says they both exist and are real, but they exist in their own separate realities, in their own domains, and somehow or other, they come together and they interact. But nobody's ever been able to explain how that could be possible if they truly are radically different and exist in their own domains. So because of that problem of explaining how they ever interact and come together, um, dualism has fallen by the wayside for most people. Its place was taken by materialism, which essentially lops off half of reality and says, no, only matter is real, and consciousness is a byproduct of the evolution of matter as it becomes more and more complex. The problem there is to explain how would it be possible for consciousness, something non-physical, to emerge from the complexity of purely physical ingredients. Nobody can explain that one. Then the third worldview is idealism, the one that's most popular in most spiritual traditions and in New Age circles. It's really the mirror image of materialism. It says, no, the ultimate reality is pure consciousness. And matter is either an illusion or it's something that emanates from pure spirit. But the idea of something physical emanating from pure non-physical starting point uh, is just as problematic as the materialist position of saying that consciousness comes from pure energy. And the idea that matter is just an illusion, um, logically, that's not so problematic, but it's pragmatically problematic <laughs> because nobody, even the people who say that matter is an illusion, they wear clothes, they eat food, they drink, they avoid cars in the freeway. Everybody, including people who deny the reality of matter, treats matter as though it's real even while they're claiming it is unreal. And in philosophy, we call that a performative contradiction. <laughs> so if you cannot live in the world safely and sanely by denying the reality of matter, if you are forced by reality to acknowledge the reality of matter, why deny its existence? So there are problems with idealism. And that leaves then the fourth worldview, which is the one that attracts me most of all. It's called panpsychism. And that's the idea that, yes, both matter and and consciousness exist, or energy and consciousness exist, but they're not separate. They never were separate and they never can be separate. That consciousness goes all the way down, that whatever level of the physical world, whether it's bodies, molecules, atoms, subatomic particles, that there's some degree of consciousness there too. And so if we begin to view the world as, yes, there is a unity and the unity is energy, but it's not the energy that physics talks about. It's sentient energy. It's energy that has its own ability to feel and to be aware, that energy comes with its own intrinsic ability to know, to feel, and make choices. So the relationship between consciousness and energy is that I sometimes give the definition of consciousness this way, um, that consciousness is the intrinsic ability of matter energy to feel and know and be aware and to purposefully direct itself. So consciousness is what is directing the flow of energy that we call the evolution of the cosmos and the evolution of our species and everything else. Consciousness is directing that. Evolution is not random. And, um, and, and clearly the, the idea of 
supernatural creation doesn't make a lot of sense either. So if we regard energy as intrinsically intelligent and it's making its own choices, we can view evolution as the grand adventure of matter energy exploring its own potentials. I love it, the grand adventure of matter energy. Now, there are a lot of questions come up. One, you you said all the way down that that consciousness exists all the way down to the molecules. So does that mean that rocks have consciousness? No, it doesn't. Um, what it does mean, though, is that the molecules that make up the rock do have their own molecular consciousness. And so here we need to make a distinction between what are called heaps and holes, that a rock is a heap, whereas an organism like our living bodies, they're holes. They, all, all our parts are integrated in, into a system that is internally related, that all the parts require the input from the other parts. That's not true of the molecules in a rock. They're kind of like neighbors sitting beside each other, but you can split the rock in half and the two halves will remain indefinitely. You can't do that with an organism with a hole. So a rock is a heap. It's not a hole. Only holes like bodies organisms have their own unit of consciousness. And in that sense, a molecule is, according to my favorite philosopher, Alfred North Whitehead, a molecule can be considered and should be considered a form of an organism. It has its own wholeness. The parts of the molecule are internally related and they do form a unity. So we do have consciousness in the molecules in the rock, but there is no rock consciousness, just like the table doesn't have table consciousness or this glass of water doesn't have... Uh, cup consciousness or glass consciousness. So in in some of the shamanistic, let's say, uh, worldview, yes. they think of rivers as living and, and mountains mm. as living. So what would you have to say about that? Yeah, um, that's... It, that's tricky because I certainly, and I've had similar experiences myself when I've engaged in shamanic work of experiencing the, the intelligence of the natural world. The big question philosophically is, um, are we relating to the molecules and the atoms in the, in the rivers and the mountains, or does the mountain as a whole have its own unity? Well, um, Scientifically, it looks like a mountain is, would qualify as a heap, um, and possibly a river and a lake would as well. But the molecules in the mountain, just as the molecules in a rock, would have their own consciousness. So I think we can um, see a, a compatibility between the shamanic teaching, the shamanic experience, and the philosophy of panpsychism is that what the shaman is doing is having what I would call an intersubjective relationship, an intersubjective experience with the molecules that make up the mountain, with the molecules that make up the rivers, with the molecules that make up the air, just as they do with other animals and plants, for example. Well, it, it just takes me back also to, to one of the quotes that you have in the book, and it, it's a quote from Einstein and I, it was one I've not, I've not heard of before, but um, just to, not to give the whole quote, but he pointed out that we think of ourselves, human beings think of ourselves as separated from the rest of the living creatures on the planet. 
And I, and I bring this up because thinking of a mountain as, as something that's living or something, but, but he talks about this as we create a kind of prison for ourselves by doing this, the way we separate ourselves from nature, the way we, we don't often look at nature as being intrinsically wise or mm-hmm. having some sort of consciousness or some sort of purpose of or movement or meaning for going forward and uh, so we we live in a kind of ghetto so to speak and a human ghetto that we've created for ourselves in our separation from all this other livingness uh, so that just brings us to another whole subject that you cover in the book about um the special, the way we think of ourselves, humans think of ourselves as being special. Yeah. And what would you have to say about our specialness? Well, I like the, the word that you used just a moment ago about a ghetto. And, and so I was thinking, what kind of ghetto is it? Is it a cognitive ghetto? Yeah, we could call it that, but we could also call it a narrative ghetto. It's a ghetto of a story. And the story we tell ourselves is that humans are special. And we can support that myth, I call it a myth, from the scientific perspective of materialism, but also from some spiritual traditions and religious dogma as well. So science will tell us that humans are special because we have these special brains with a neocortex that produces consciousness. And that makes no sense. There's no way to explain how non-conscious matter in the neurons of the brain could ever come together and produce consciousness if they don't have it to begin with. Um, The religious traditions, the monotheistic religions, traditions in particular, um, take the view that humans are special because we have souls that were injected into us by God. And so... There's this two-prong attack on the natural world and separation, and that's what ghettoizes humans from the rest of the natural world. When people adopt that attitude or take the point of view that, oh, it's anthropomorphic to, it's just projection to say that nature has its own consciousness or nature has its own feeling or its own purpose or its own intelligence. Um, The question that I like to ask people when they make that claim is, Where do you think our intelligence and our consciousness came from? Clearly, we are part of the natural world. We didn't just spring into being miraculously from nowhere. We evolved from the stuff of the universe, from the stuff of our planet. And if we, if our bodies are made of the same atoms as the rest of the natural world, and those atoms form molecules, and those molecules form cells, and those cells form organs and organisms, and we have consciousness... Where did that come from? Well, the only coherent explanation, it seems to me, is that our consciousness came from the ingredients that make us up. It came from our cells. It came from the molecules that make those cells. It came from the atoms that make those molecules and from the subatomic particles that make those atoms. And that's what makes the natural world. So if the atoms that form our bodies have their own degree of consciousness and those atoms there's no such thing as a special human element or a special human atom. So the atoms that make us make us up can be found elsewhere. You mean if we divided ourselves down to the atomic level, it, that that level, it, our atoms would not look different from let's let's say this this glass here. 
Well, yeah, to, to the extent that that we are made up of you know carbon atoms, nitrogen atoms, oxygen atoms, hydrogen atoms, and and a few other elements like that. But all of those elements are found in the rest of the natural world throughout the cosmos, not just on in our on our own planet. And if those atoms have their own and must have their own degree of consciousness or sentience in our bodies, then there's no reason to assume that they wouldn't have it in the rest of the natural world. So we'll talk more about this in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Christian De Quincey, and he's the author of Blind Spots, 21 Good Reasons to Think Before You Talk. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Christian De Quincey, and he's a professor of philosophy and uh, the author of many books, including Blind Spots, 21 Good Reasons to Think Before You Talk. And we're talking about humans as special or not special. I, I know you use the word that humans are um, specialaholics, <laughs> and we might need some intervention of our addiction to this specialness. But uh, I, I, w- I want you to first say something about what is unique about humans, and you talk about it, it's because mm-hmm. of a combination of things that have come together in our particular species. Well, th- yes. Um, so just to step back a little bit and to clarify— um, I know there, I've had this conversation with many, many colleagues in, in science and philosophy that they said, well, obviously humans are special. We created civilization. We have art. We have science. We have philosophy. We have religions, and no other species does that. And and I say, yes, I have to acknowledge that. And, and another point they often make out is that it's our species that created the global crisis that we face today. Not the, not the worms, not the birds, not the bees. It's the humans that did that. So we're special in that sense, something very different. And I acknowledge that. Yes, there is something different about the human species. But there's something different about every species. That's what defines a species. If it's important for people to consider humans as special, I say, okay, go at it. But then you need to also acknowledge that every species is special and that there is nothing especially special about human specialness. That's the point that we need to make, that if everything is special, then in some ways nothing is special. That yes, humans have some special attributes, but so do bees and dolphins and dogs and cats and worms. They can do things, for example, um, bats and dolphins navigate their way through the world using echolocation, using sonar. We don't have that sense. So they're different from us in that way. We have differences, we have different senses, and we combine them in different ways, and that's what makes us unique. Yes, we are unique, but so is every other species. There's nothing especially special about our uniqueness. However, there is one thing that we do that it more than any other species, and that is to manipulate our environment. 
We we are masters at that, much mm-hmm. to our mm-hmm. dismay and mm-hmm. and maybe uh, to our survival. Well, well, that's true. Actually, I would say that probably every species, including plants, manipulate their environment to some degree. Now, there's another meaning of manipulation, which involves the opposable thumb. So we have, because of our opposable thumb, we have a greater ability to manipulate the environment, to create technology. And, and we know the consequences of that, both good and bad, by manipulating the environment, by creating technology. But other species also have um, an ability to manipulate the environment. We've got plenty of examples of apes and, and monkeys using sticks to probe into holes. And even to, crows. Crows. Other animals do. Yeah. Um, octopus do that. There's A couple of years ago, I think it was in 2012, that, that the a group of scientists and philosophers at Cambridge University in the UK came out with what they call the Declaration um, of Consciousness, which was to uh, claim that other, many other species have consciousness. It's not something unique to uh, humans. It's not even unique to creatures with a, a central nervous system. That, or a neocortex. Or a, certainly not a neocortex. Um, so, for example, um, you don't have to be a vertebrate to have that. Octopus don't have a, ver- a vertebrate, They're, They yet they are highly intelligent creatures. I, I, I just loved it. When you mentioned that in the book, uh, and you mentioned that in that declaration, they specifically mention octopus. Mm-hmm. They're fascinating. So I loved it that octopus was specifically mentioned in that declaration. Yeah, yeah. And, and here's a little anecdote. Um, I, I can't cite the source because it was some years ago when I saw it, but I remember reading about um, some biologists who had an octopus in, a, in, a, in, a, in, their, in their lab. And they would go go home at night, and they'd leave the octopus in, in, in its tank. And across at the other side of the lab, there was a fish tank with fish in it. And they'd come in in the morning, and they'd find some of the fish were missing. And they wondered, what's what's going on here? So they put it in a, in a security camera, um, and infrared, and they, they were able to watch what was going on at night. What they discovered is that the octopus that had a lid over its tank when, when the lab was empty, it would slide the, the roof of its tank back, slide out of its tank, slither across the floor into the fish tank, have its dinner, then slide back, and then pull the, the cover back over its own tank. Who, me? I didn't. I, don't look at me. I've been in my tank all this time. That's intelligence. That's strategy. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. What a wonderful, wonderful story. That's just really wonderful. But I, I going back to human intelligence and and nature, and I know that you have made this statement that one of the things that we might do better is to listen to nature because nature has an intelligence and a wisdom to to impart to us. Can you comment on that? Well, well, yes, and in some ways that goes back to the point we were discussing earlier was say that our intelligence is obviously a product of nature. Where else did it come from? We are products of nature, and therefore everything about us is also a product of nature. And if, if as I say, that consciousness, intelligence goes all the way down, then that means that all the atoms and molecules that make up the natural world around us have their own intelligence, and that therefore nature as a whole has a mind of its own, that nature has its own intelligence. And, and I... 
I view the the human body, all in fact, all animal bodies, and, and including plant bodies, as antennas that are picking up these messages from the natural world around us that the natural world is constantly communicating with itself, and we are part of that. And indigenous peoples have known this for millennia. Um, in our modern technological industrial civilization, we've tended to suppress that and forget that or even deny it. And so we no longer pay attention to the messages and communications coming from the natural world all around us. But if we take the time, as shamans do, and, and some of us do when we get into med meditative states, we can actually slow down, slow down the thinking mind and just get into the feeling, the embodied feeling, and actually begin to feel the messages and the meaning being communicated to us from the natural world. If we don't listen to that, I think... I don't think we have much of a future as a species. Uh -huh. I think we really need to incorporate the wisdom of the indigenous peoples into our modern cosmology and not just rely on abstract scientific or philosophical Western knowledge. We need to include feeling and intuition as parts of our ways of knowing the world. So that takes us to the idea that we must change our story about our specialness yes. and about um, the kinds of beliefs that we have. And I, I love the way you describe beliefs as opposed to intention. And this is kind of getting into we create our own reality. Yeah. So beliefs are a frozen kind of moment in time. It's like, I, I think of it, the way you describe it is like, like we're walking along and, and then we have this belief. It's like this big boulder in the middle of our path. It's not going to move anywhere. It's not going anywhere. It's just sort of sitting there. And mostly they're unconscious. and We don't even know that they're there. But we are collecting them from our past and making choices because of them. So can you say something about beliefs as opposed to intention in regards to creating our own reality. Yes, that's that's very important. Uh, so there are two um, in, important points there. Uh, first, let's go back to we create our own reality. That's one of the blind spots that I, I, I write about in, in, in the book, Blind Spots. Um, I think I, I understand the, um, the, the, the deeper insight that that phrase or cliche is trying to express but I think it's, um, it's expressed, unfortunately, in a way that really doesn't make sense. If it were true that we, each of us, creates our own reality, if I created my reality and you created your reality, we would exist in our own separate realities and we could never communicate. Well, clearly, that's not the case. We are communicating. So we don't li live in our own realities. We live in a shared reality. So rather than say each of us creates our own reality, I think a much more accurate statement is to say each of us participates in co-creating a shared reality. So that's the, the, the first thing. So we don't have total, uh, uh, we can't totally manipulate it because there's this other reality coming in which is your reality or your, it, it, it just is all entangled. Well, yes, I, I refer to that as the great cosmic democracy, <laughs> is that every one of us, and by that I don't, of course, mean just humans, every sentient being throughout the entire cosmos is making choices at every moment. 
And each choice, you can consider it like a vote. Each, every one of us gets to vote, but we don't get to decide the outcome. At every moment in time, the universe, reality, consists of the collective choices that are made by all sentient beings throughout the cosmos and how they cancel each other out and balance each other out. That's the state of reality. So yes, we can contribute to that process through intention and through our choices, but there's no guarantee that our choices and intentions are the ones that are going to get manifest in the next moment. As I think we all know from our own life experience is that, um, you know, the phrase is often used, the, the, the path to to hell is 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 paved with, with great intentions, intentions or something right. something yeah. like that. Uh-huh. So so our, our intentions don't always get manifest. I often look at it this way: for our intentions to be manifest, they have to surf the wave of the collective uh, consciousness, the collective intentions. That only when our individual intentions are aligned with the collective intentions, with with if you like the divine intention, only then. Do our individual intentions get manifest? So this is where we we give the advice um, that we have certain preferences. Let's yeah. say we we in, in as an intention, I have this preference for this to happen, but we need to hold it loosely, hold the future loosely. And that's often an advice given. Well, right. Um, we, we, we know both from psychology and spiritual traditions, from the psycho-spiritual traditions, we know that um, it makes a difference to have a clear and focused intention, but it gets in the way of manifestation if we get attached to that intention. So we need to create the intention and then release it to see how it unfolds within the the matrix of all the other intentions that are being created in, in that moment. But to come back to the difference between belief and intention, I often say that beliefs never create anything except perhaps trouble. <laughs> that if we cling to our belief systems, um, a belief is an abstraction. Every belief is made up of thoughts, and thoughts are these frozen fragments of consciousness. It's like we take a snapshot of reality, and that's what a thought is. We have we have an experience at every moment, and then we freeze frame that. All right, so that's that's what a belief is, and we're going to go into intention in just one moment. I'm here with Dr. Christian DeQuincy, and he's the author of Blind Spots, 21 Good Reasons to Think Before You Talk. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Christian DeQuincy, and he's the author of Blind Spots, 
21 good reasons to think before you talk. Now, we've just been talking about beliefs and what they are, these frozen moments of thought that kind of coalesce into a more solidified moment uh, in some way. But now, what is an intention? Or maybe you want to say again, re-say what a, what a belief is. Yes, okay. So, so basically, at every moment, we are all having an experience. We don't have to do anything about that. It just comes with the package of, of being a sentient being, is that we're having an experience at every moment. So we don't need to do anything about that. What happens, though, is that we have evolved these minds that as soon as we have an experience, we interpret the experience. We have a thought about it. We freeze frame that moment of experience. It's like we pluck it out of the stream of ongoing experiences. And that's what a thought is. And beliefs are then made up of these molecules of thoughts, if you like. Beliefs are collections of thoughts. But every thought is about an experience that happened sometime in the past. So all beliefs are rooted in the past, even if there are beliefs about the present or beliefs about the future. They're origin is in the past. They're about experiences. They grew out of experiences that no longer exist because at every moment there is a new moment of experience. So what tends to happen is we get so entranced about our beliefs and our thoughts that we forget to pay attention to our actual in-the-moment embodied experience. And so we, and I, as I often point out to, to my students, I say, when does consciousness exist? It exists right now in the present moment. When does reality exist? It exists right now in the present moment. Well, what a wonderful coincidence that consciousness and reality coincide right now in the present moment. That the way to know reality is by paying attention to our experience in the moment, not to our thoughts or our beliefs, because they be they refer to moments that no longer are, that no longer exist now. They refer to the past. Whether that past is just a moment ago or back in our childhood, it's not the current present moment. So when you're talking about an intention? And then intention, I see intention as an expression of the soul, expression of our, of our spirit, of our deepest being. And an intention is the creative aspect of consciousness focusing itself on some result, on some manifestation. So an intention comes from the essence of consciousness itself. It's not an abstraction. It's the expression of the deepest nature of our experience focused on some aim or some goal, some purpose. So how I would hold that, and I, I drew this out, I, I, I talk about time mm. as a spectrum and uh, the, the past on the spectrum uh, informs our choice yes. often. The, the now is the only time that we can actually make a choice. Mm -hmm. And the future is about the creative possibilities of that choice. Yes, in, in a way, but I think we need to be careful. Um, we can define time as, as, as a three-part process. It consists of events that have happened, the past, events that are happening right now, the present, and events that have yet to happen, the future. Therefore, the future is, doesn't yet exist. It's events that have yet to exist. 
If the future existed already, then it wouldn't be the future. It would be the present. So um, possibilities don't exist in the future. They exist in the present moment. What we do with intention is a little bit, in fact, very much like collapsing the quantum wave function as we select one of the possibilities and bring through intention, we manifest that into an actuality. And it has to also coincide with the collective reality of intentions. To, to make a significant difference in, yeah. in, how, in how reality is unfolding. Yes, it does. Yes. Yes, yes. One other thing that I want to make sure to, to um, cover, and this going back to choice, having choice. Mm-hmm. And um, w- w- you talk about, like, if materialistic science... If they say, here are the laws of science, and they're measuring measuring things that can be seen and felt and measured and so forth that take up space or volume or whatever, and, and they, um, they're immutable. These will, are good for all time, all the past, all the future. But somehow what gets weird about it is that it doesn't take into consideration this other force, I'm going to call it force, Mm -hmm. which is consciousness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that kind of skews the whole thing. And so often science comes up with saying, oh, well, it's a mystery. Oh, well, it's an anomaly. Or they, they, but they don't really explain it. Uh, and I think you have a bumper sticker, uh, science is not scientific or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, so can you say something about these immutable laws that people accept and yet it doesn't take in the whole picture possibly? Well, yes, you're exactly right. But in a universe where consciousness and choice exist, you cannot have universal laws as science tries to tell us. You can only have universal laws in a universe where there's no consciousness or choice. Well, clearly, consciousness exists in this universe because that's the foundation for all science. Every scientific piece of data that has ever existed and will ever exist comes into being because some scientist had an experience of the data. So science is built up of these experiences, but the one thing that science cannot explain or account for is the fact of those experiences. So science cannot account for its own existence, and that's why I say that in, in, given its own, um, its own definitions of reality, science is intrinsically unscientific because it cannot support the fact of its own existence. It cannot explain the existence of consciousness, and therefore it cannot explain how scientists can experience anything about the world and all of science is built up on those experiences. So the big thing that's missing there is that scientists who are observing it in the first place and even having thoughts about it and mm-hmm. feelings about it and, and they just dismiss that. They, they, they don't even take that into account. Well, well, some of them try to and, mm-hmm. and, and, and they they do so in a way that actually just makes things even more um, complicated and and and, uh, and and erroneous by saying that their own consciousness is something that has evolved through the millions of years of human evolution, uh, the formation of the neocortex, and therefore, and if, to use a phrase that a philosopher from from Berkeley University 
uh, as called the brain squirts out consciousness. The brain, uh, that consciousness or mind emerges from mindless matter in the brain. But no scientist, no philosopher can even begin to explain how you could possibly get consciousness from purely non-conscious ingredients. So there are two separate worlds, so to speak. I mean, you're trying to mix apple and oranges or whatever the metaphor would be. Actually, apples and oranges mix pretty well. (laughs) What you're thinking? You're, you're. Well, basically, it's, it's, it's coming back to the start of our conversation when, when scientific materialists claim that mind or consciousness emerges from non-conscious neurons, brain cells. They're basically saying that something is coming from nothing, that you're getting something non-physical, which is mind or consciousness, from purely physical ingredients. But there's no way to explain how you could get a one kind of a completely different kind of reality from starting with purely physical ingredients there's no way to explain how purely objective things could ever produce beings that are subjective and have experiences and intentions and feelings and can make choices one of the things and uh, I, I just uh, there's so many places we could go here christian but one of the things that you talk about and this goes back to choice and you say something about Alzheimer's and that disease and how what it does, it kind of eliminates the possibility of, of choice. Uh, I think you say it negates the spark of creative choice that enables us to express intentions, to be aware of, and to select new and different possibilities leading to novel and unpredictable outcomes. And that is such a great quote for what we are capable of and what we are facing right now in as a species is making these creative choices. Do you have a comment on that? Well, yes. I mean, we, every sentient being has the ability to make creative choices. Um, that's that's what happens when when there's a quantum event. There is a creative choice being made, and because we are made up of uh, all all the subatomic particles are made up of these quanta. The quanta, uh, the, the, the subatomic particles make up the atoms. The atoms make the molecules, and so on. And we are made of all of that, and we can make choices. So therefore, choice goes all the way down. We have a higher um, capacity for making choices because we have a, a complex and highly evolved combination of all these um, levels of reality. And um, so we have a responsibility to use our ability to make choices um, from the spectrum of possibilities that are available to us that conform to an intention that supports the well-being of the collective. Christian, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Justine. It's been, time has gone so fast. Oh, it has. <laughs> I've been here with Dr. Christian DeQuincy, and he's the author of Blind Spots 21 Good Reasons to Think Before You Talk. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, ChristianDeQuincy.com, and he spells his last name D E Q U. I-N-C-E-Y, ChristianDeQuincy.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, 
newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3568. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. New Dimensions.